We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 21st, 2021. I'm sure many of you that are listening might be like many White Sox fans, searching for answers on what happened this weekend in Houston. The Chicago White Sox, simply put, were outclassed by the Houston Astros, getting swept in four games, and they were outscored 27-8. to On this episode, we look into what went wrong for the White Sox, what parts are just a bump in the road and things will get better, and uh, which parts need to be addressed, especially before the trade deadline, if this White Sox team is going to win the American League pennant. We'll recap the week that was down in the minor leagues, also preview the next series for the White Sox as they head to Pittsburgh for two games and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Boy, if you could skip one weekend of White Sox baseball, this past weekend would have been the one. And I kind of did, <laughs> as luck might have it. Uh, one of my wife's friends was coming through town, and we have, you know, because of COVID and such, we have not had visitors really over the last year plus. So, you know, she came by and Saturday nights figured like, well, you know, I haven't, I've basically seen every game live this year, so I may as well take a break. So you... Uh, graciously handled the recap and I thank you for that (laughs) then Sunday I watched that game you know I figured like I'm gonna you know um sit down for the whole thing you know don't want to miss two games in a row um and just uh catch up with them later figure out what they're doing and and meet up reconvene there and then I watched the first five innings and you know watched the defense melt down and I watched them ground into three consecutive double plays after leadoff walks and I said I'm gonna stop right here like uh I, I don't see a point you know when it's the front end of a bullpen it just seemed like uh the White Sox were just out of players or out of idea. I don't know whether they're more out of players or out of ideas or both, but it just uh, seemed like uh, all the problems we marveled at the White Sox for 
um, either working through or downplaying or making it seem like they weren't that big of a deal, all kind of resurfaced in one ugly weekend to, to show that they're very present. Yeah, the, the failed rundown on Sunday is when I looked at Frankie and said, we're going for a walk, bud. <laughs> uh, when Tim Anderson dropped that ball and just disastrous. And yeah, it was not a good weekend at all. So let's break it down. And the, the first question that we got from our mailbag, but we're going to answer it here from one of our Patreon supporters, uh, AJ Mithin. AJ wrote to us, Jim, forget about being outplayed. The White Sox were completely outplanned by Houston. Defensive shifts, pitching approaches, hitting approaches, all well above any level the White Sox have faced in 2021. What are your thoughts on the White Sox ability to play as the hunted? Yeah, it's, I mean, we kind of mentioned this in a couple of different ways in the previous show. We talked about when we marveled at Houston's offense, just the depth and the amount of hard contact they're able to make while not striking out too much. So there's that. And then we also talked about the White Sox lineup and how they took two of three against the Rays to climb to the best record in baseball. And he looked at their lineup and said, like, how the hell did this lineup actually get to be the best in baseball? Or how did they, um, you know, survive all these injuries? And absences and underperformances to get there and then you know they they go from within four days being the best record in baseball to the fifth tied for the fifth best record of baseball and that's because of a a four-game sweep where these questions that we ask like how are they doing this or why are they doing this or how long can they do, do this were kind of answered by well, they can do this, again, but not against a super team. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you can call the Astros a super team yet. I mean, I think they're short on the pitching side uh, when it comes to like name brand talent. But I think the offense is a pretty super offense uh, just with their combination of power and contact. And on the pitching side, I think they, you know, lar- you know maybe they don't have name brand talent yet. They're, they don't have like the Verlander, Grinky type uh, lineup that they had before when it came to you know, running out one through five. But they do have... Uh, righties at least for one turn through the rotation who were just pretty much throwing strikes and throwing quality strikes against the White Sox and making them you know put the ball in play and, and more than that like uh, you know get lift um, not just put the ball in play but you know be able to beat shifts or hit through shifts or hit over the wall and they were just underpowered in doing so like they could not uh, basically they they the Astros pitching staff just Got them to beat the ball on the ground. Uh, if they did walk a guy, they were able to get the ground ball they needed. He gave up a couple homers, but you know none that were really um, you know crucial or none that were um, that they couldn't overcome with their own offense. So it seems like they're not good enough to be the hunted when a team like the Astros, uh, the offensive depth they have, is doing the hunting. Um, I think when it comes to like uh, I, I guess the massive split in quality of opponents from this past week to this coming week. I think, you know, a lot of fans moods could change to where it feels like, okay, that was just an aberration against really good teams. I think now if they show up with a similar performance against Pittsburgh and Seattle, that's when I think I would get concerned, concerned right now. I think they're just enough flawed teams and banged up teams. Cause even the Rays were uh, missing some guys and, and had to rest some guys against the white Sox. uh, that I think, uh, the Astros just seem to have everything lined up in terms of they lost Alex Bregman, but even then they have enough depth to make up for that. And uh, the pitching was just impressive. And, and whether that's just uh, four good games or just 
for you know decent starts against a team that's uniquely vulnerable to what they're offering uh, I suppose we'll see as the competition theoretically gets lighter yeah the Tampa Bay Rays as you mentioned Jim have lost six straight games uh, which obviously includes the two games that they lost to the White Sox they got swept by the Seattle Mariners in which mm-hmm. Seattle is going to be coming to Chicago next weekend when capacity goes to 100% at guarantee rate field. And I know a lot of White Sox fans look at that series and say, all right, well, they're going to face more bums. I caution against calling Seattle bums. They have been playing some pretty good baseball of late. And then after that Seattle series, it's the Minnesota twins with Byron Buxton back. And that's a different team with Buxton in the lineup than we saw previously when the White Sox and twins have squared off. Uh, so it may not be the same quality of what that we were expecting as far as, oh, these are two bums next week that the White Sox will be playing. Uh, it may be a bit tougher and not exactly a cakewalk for the White Sox after the Pittsburgh series. And the Tampa Bay Rays made a significant move. They called up the number one prospect in Major League Baseball, Wander Franco. So they are not messing around anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, if only the White Sox had that kind of player to call up. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, What is your big takeaway from this series? What is one thing that you are going to be paying attention to after these four games? Well, we talked about uh, last week about Yohan Mankata. During the live show, we talked about Yohan Mankata being the focus. And right now, he still looks just tired or... um, you know, just, just off his game. Like, the bat looks still a little bit slow. The throws from third are really erratic. So uh, I, I think that's my takeaway right now is that uh, he did not have the series we were hoping for. Yet, you know, with Larry Garcia missing time with a you know, banged up knee on a slide, you know, being the latest injury, that he still has to play. And, and to me, it kind of reminds me of like you ever see, I'm thinking like, you know, just kind of the classic action movie or uh, like say like the, the old uh, Jackie Chan action movies to where like, you know, he's, exhausted and surrounded and getting beat up and he has that like uh that moment like maybe a little like three quarters in the movie where I feel like okay he's finally going to succumb to the numbers and of course you know it's, heroes in those movies seldom do but the White Sox kind of feel like they're in the moment like they're underarmed they're surrounded um they they don't have any way out I don't see how they're possibly going to uh swing their way out of this and and uh and be able to beat just the odds and the talent disparity because you look at the lineup and you, and you see who they're running out there in the outfield and the infield you know you know relying a whole lot on Danny Mendick even more than they thought initially you know having Jake Lamb out there and right and still not looking comfortable in the corner uh you know your mean Mercedes is uh you know he looks like he's um you know, he's, he's getting closer and closer to flash in the pan label so yeah it's uh just it, it feels like they really could use whether it's uh, you know a, a comeback like um, you know Eloy Jimenez or Luis Robert or like even an internal comeback like Yohan Moncada looking like Yohan Moncada or that Wander Franco who is no <laughs> they don't have a guy like him in their system. But right now I think you know just uh, you're going to see a team that's going to need its pitching to carry it because just the offense right now I think is the lineup is pretty rough. Yeah, this past weekend, the offensive woes for the White Sox. Tim Anderson went one for 16 with five strikeouts. Jose Abreu went two for 14. He only had two RBIs, and he did walk twice. Yohan Makata had the best of the series out of these three 
Uh, he was three for 13 with three walks, but he just had the one RBI, which came off his double uh, over the weekend. If Anderson, Abreu, and Mikata hit like this over a four-game series, it's going to be tough for the White Sox offense as they are currently built uh, to be successful over that weekend. Mm-hmm. They really need these three guys to perform at a high level. By the way, on the Houston front, Michael Brantley, five for 16 with a home run and six RBIs. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Jose Altuve also gave the White Sox headaches. He was five for 14 with a home run and two doubles. You mentioned Alex Bregman not playing in the series. Well, his replacement, Abraham Toro, went seven for 11 with yep. a home run and five RBI. An incredible Bregman simulation. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, the, the Houston Astros are a buzzsaw. That's, that's one of my takeaways from this series. Houston's playing really well. But let's talk about the White Sox offensive woes. And back to Jose Abreu and Yoan Makata. As you mentioned, Jim, that... Yohan Makata is not himself. In the month of June, Yohan Makata is hitting 216 with a 328 on base percentage, and he's slugging just 314. I really did believe that Yohan Makata would have a huge month of June, and I have accidentally put a reverse jinx on Yohan Makata. The other way, he's not having a good June. He had a terrible defensive series against Houston. Uh, what did he, was it three errors in total over the four games? Yeah, I think all in the first inning. Yeah. 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 Great way to start the game. Uh, and Makata only has one home run. Jose Abreu in the month of June is having by far the worst June of his career. He is hitting 186 with a 219 on base percentage and slugging just 300 this month. Jose Abreu only has one home run in the month of June. One home run from Jose Abreu. So it's obvious the White Sox need Jose Abreu and Yohan Makata to get back on track. Because if these guys are hitting 3-4 in the lineup, if they're hitting 2-3 in the lineup, they are not performing well in the month of June. And the White Sox are just not getting anything from those two guys in the middle of the lineup. Can't have it. And then you mentioned Aloy Jimenez, that the White Sox lineup really needs him. And they do, because the White Sox lineup needs power, Jim. Mm -hmm. They are tied for last in the American League with the Kansas City Royals with just 69 home runs this season. Their team ISO is 149. That's 13th in the American League. There's only two other teams that have less power than the White Sox in their lineup. Their team-weighted runs create a plus because this is often uh, as far as referred to for those that are trying to calm down White Sox fans. They would say currently the team-weighted runs create a plus is 108. They're 8% better than league average, folks. They're 108-ing. They're 108-ing for the season. In the month of June, it's 95. And that was before Sunday's loss. That's 13th in the American League. And the team OPS for the White Sox in the month of June is 685. Guess what? That's 13th in the American League. This is one of the worst offense performing offenses in the month of June so far in the American League. And if you look at their season totals, April is carrying a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. If Aloy Jimenez is five to six weeks away from rejoining the team, and that includes his rehab appearances down in the minor leagues. Jim, I don't think the White Sox can wait around and find out if he can help carry the offense when he returns. 
I just feel like that's too much time and that's too many games to wait to see if Eloy Jimenez could be the offensive savior. Because that time frame also includes another series against Houston, which is immediately after the All-Star break. Yeah, you don't want to put eggs in that basket where, you know, not only does Jimenez have to come back and, you know, take over a position of some kind. I, I imagine it would be DH. Like, I don't see him coming back to the left field. Even if, like, they need to play somebody like, you know, a mildly productive Jake Lamb out there. I think even then they would trust Lamb more than Jimenez. But, yeah, it, it's... they can't wait for him, but they also like, it's still, you know, maybe uh, we're looking at like six weeks before the trade deadline. So that's a little bit early too, in terms of just, you know, which teams are considering themselves sellers. There are some obvious sellers and, you know, we've talked about Adam Frazier just being able to fill multiple positions like that. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. That's, I think the hope here for me is that, you know, with two off days coming up that it just allows them to hit the reset button. I think Tony LaRussa, just you're reading his comments, uh, listening to post game comments after the game, like you know, trying to detect in his tone or uh, through his words, like trying to sense just irritation, general alarm, uh, you know, whether he's trying to light any specific fires because generally he's been very defensive or not, maybe not defensive, but just forgiving uh, regarding his players in public and being more general with this criticism. I'm not really seeing that. So I think, you know, this week, just felt like you know we we knew it was a tough two weeks on the schedule and by the end of it and with the bodies they had available and the pitching having like you know you can't get mad at Lance Lynn for having one bad start when he's been so good all year can't be mad at Dallas Keuchel when his defense failed him so so obviously so apparently it wasn't just a you know a a one-off error it was like a colossal rundown failure so you can't get too mad at them for uh faltering in one start when they've been so good for the bulk of the season. So I think you do have to turn to the offense, but I think just the injuries they've suffered, I think that next week when they have two off days, when they have a weak opponent in the middle of that, just basically four days to try to regain either their mojo or their health, their bat speed, what have you. I think if they don't perform this coming week, I think that's when you might see LaRusso's tone change. But right now, I think he's still trying to play the long game and still not trying to get too mad at players who I think everybody knows inside and outside weren't expected to have to shoulder the burden that they've had to shoulder. I think if Abreu and Mankata bounce back and play at the level that we expect him to produce offensively, I think that buys Rick Hahn three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. I still think Rick Hahn needs to make a move before the trade deadline. And I do believe the White Sox will make some type of move to help with the offense before the trade deadline. Just because the players, these role players are fading. And we're going to talk about one in particular in a moment here. And if they're fading, but Abreu and Makata are not having a good month, this is the end result where you have one of the worst Mm -hmm. performing offenses in the month of June. And you are putting a lot more pressure on the White Sox pitching staff uh, to help carry the load. It's it's not that they need a lot of support. <laughs> they really don't. They just if you score if the White Sox offense could score four runs, it just feels like, all right, this is gonna be a breeze with the way that White Sox pitchers, especially the starters, have been performing prior to the Houston series. Carlos Rodon just needed four runs and the White Sox would have not been swept. They would have won that game. But 
if Mikata and Abreu do not bounce back, I think that is where it's going to continue to increase the urgency that, boy, if Abreu and Mikata are going to have this rough patch here and we are starting to struggle against the teams that we should be beating up, Pittsburgh, Minnesota, Seattle, you got Detroit and you got Baltimore. Those are the teams remaining before the White Sox hit the all-star break. Uh, then that may force the White Sox to to make a move because it's just too much time lapsing and and hoping that Aloy Jimenez is the savior right away when he returns is a bit unfair. And I, I don't think uh, that should be what the expectations are when Jimenez does return to the White Sox. I think it's unfair to fans too. Like just it's unfair to everybody. It's unfair to Jimenez just because, you know, the injury – and, you know, White Sox fans, or I think a lot of them, you know, were skeptical of Jimenez being an outfielder and he hurts himself again. So if you have Jimenez come back, like, it's, it's one thing to, you know, have the temptation or the obvious allure of Jimenez being at near full strength and what he adds to the lineup. But if he gets hurt again, then what? And if he, right. if he gets hurt again, you know, given that he's had minor injuries of all sorts before this, you know, first real catastrophic one, um, then what do you have? So, I mean, they need Jimenez to be that guy who, you know, basically like Wander, you know, it would be their Wander Franco, just the guy they it have in their minors or in their, you know, for rehab or just service time manipulation, what have you, just the guy they have in reserve that can come up and just be a bat when they need a bat. Uh, and, and preferably, I guess you'd, you'd think of that like after the trade, trade deadline or after moves are made. Uh, that's where the bonus comes in because like when, you know, August rolls around they, and, and should they have another injury, um, that'd be a case where they can't make moves from the outside. So Jimenez really needs to be that guy for August. So I think for July, it needs to be somebody from, I imagine, outside the house. It would go, it, it would, again, it would really help if Jose Abreu and Yohan Makata have a bounce back here and they get hot yeah. over these next two weeks because it does buy Rick Hahn time. And that's what he needs at this moment is really the only teams we know that are selling, obviously the Arizona Diamondbacks. Oh my God. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a total collapse like that uh, in major league baseball. What is it? They're like five and 38 now in their last 43 games, something like that. I'm not sure what they did today. They lost. <laughs> they lost. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that whole situation is bad. The, uh, Diamondbacks GM, his wife has brain cancer, so he had to leave the team. Uh, so it's the assistant GM right now that's running day-to-day operations. So if you're even trying to make a trade, it's difficult to understand on who is able to pull the trigger right now to start making some moves for the Diamondbacks. Uh, Pittsburgh, the team that we're going to see here this upcoming week, I think there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on Adam Frazier for obvious reasons for White Sox fans and to see how Frazier does against Lucas Giolito and Dylan Cease. Again, we'll preview that series later in this episode. But in the short term right now, White Sox really need Jose Abreu and Yohan Mercado to step up and start hitting the ball a lot better than they have in this month. In the medium term... I guess we could call that Eloy Jimenez because my expectation is that he could be rejoining the team uh, right before the trade deadline. And then in between that short and medium term is, is a possible addition from the outside, but I, I'm not quite sure on who that is. But it's pretty clear whoever they add, if they are looking to shop, if they could help in the power department, that would go mm-hmm. a long way. Let's move to the guy that was helping the White Sox in the power department in the month of April 
but no longer is. And that's your mean Mercedes. Mercedes season slash line is now 266 with a 321 on base percentage and slugging 402. If I told you that on opening day, that's where Mercedes would be in the month of June. I think a lot of White Sox fans would take that because he's a rookie and that's not a terrible slash line. But we remember where he was at the end of April and in the month of June, Mercedes is now hitting 115 with a 164 on base percentage and he's slugging 135. Mercedes has one extra base hit this month and that was a double. He has yet to hit a home run in the month of June. And this past week, Mercedes went 0 for 19 with nine strikeouts. Jim, from my perspective, it's time. It's time to send Mercedes down to AAA and ask for help from anyone from the Charlotte Knights because it's pretty clear there's something wrong with Mercedes' swing. And I just don't think it's worthwhile for him or the White Sox to keep to continue putting him in the lineup and hoping that it fixes itself. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, and, and that was one of the reasons I think I appreciated having Gordon Beckham in the booth. What did you think of, I guess, first we'll start with, a, I guess, a lighter note. What did you think of Gordon Beckham overall over the weekend? I think Gordon Beckham is going to make a very good broadcaster for future Atlanta Braves hmm. broadcasts. Yeah, perhaps. Like, I, I was surprised, you know, or I guess pleasantly surprised by how comfortable he was in front of the mic. And I think as the games wore on, uh, they... He became, I think, more assertive in his baseball knowledge. Like I think early on they introduced him and he was kind of goofy and bouncing off Panetti, who was also goofy, and there was a little bit of shtick up front. But eventually I think it got more into like him feeling comfortable like assessing players on the fly, or at least, you know, as was happening and, and describing certain mechanics and such. And I was really happy not happy, but I guess like just um I think it needed to be said, I'll put it that way, that he said that Mercedes looks like he's, Mercedes knows he's slow. Like he's not getting to the ball in time. Like his timing is off, that he's afraid of being late. Uh, that was the word he, he said, afraid of being late. Um, that's what I think has been the problem for a while. Like, especially since I noticed that he hadn't been turning around any fastballs and it just seems like uh, the pitches that are in the zone are fastballs and the pitches out of the zone are sliders. And he really would like a hittable slider and he's not getting one. And then occasionally when he get, does get a, you know one in the zone, he fouls it off because his timing's all off. But you know if he had a slider speed bat the whole time, or they feared he did, but you know maybe his hitting mechanics were so loud that it was hard to separate like just the showman in him from the actual hitting mechanics. That you know might be uh, one thing that maybe clouded the way he was evaluated. But that's kind of what it looks to me is just like a guy who is just late all the time. Like he just can't get the barrel around, can't get any lift, can't get any power. Um, and you know, he just, uh, for, um, I guess maybe partially luck, partially not getting great pitches to hit, uh, that he was getting early on, but also I think just league figuring him out that just, he is at a dead end right now. And Charlotte maybe can help like that. Yeah. I think Charlotte is really tough right now to, to evaluate just because of the really, demented splits between home and road that everybody has like they they yeah they head back to charlotte they look like uh all stars they look like you know 40 home run guys they go on the road they disappear they have a hard time getting their ops above 700 and i guess one good thing is you know should you know, maybe if they sent them down this week 
one, he'd be in Charlotte, so or he'd be in Nashville, so I could see him, you know, play for Charlotte in person, see what, if there's any difference. But also, he'd be on the road, he'd be away from the band box, you know, at Truist Field. Maybe he'd be able to just have something closer to an actual representation of what a guy can do at AAA, what he's doing, and what he might be able to provide. Because right now, it's just really hard to know who's actually hitting at Charlotte. So that's I think maybe the one thing that's maybe tough about sending him down along with the fact that he's also performed there before. But yeah, he's just not helping and he's getting further away from resembling a form. Like he's had a couple of games here and there where he just thought like, oh, he might be able to kick himself out of this, but nope. Like it's just, uh, you know, aside from the one game against Detroit, you know, where he, he, had, he had three RBIs and well, it, that's the game where they scored 15 runs. Just there really hasn't been anything there. We did get a P.O. Sox question on who could possibly replace Urban Mercedes if the White Sox sent him down to AAA. We'll address that topic later in the podcast, so stick around as we contemplate on who could possibly replace Urban Mercedes if he does get called down. But with the White Sox heading to Pittsburgh, they don't have a need for Mercedes. I mean, you could just keep him on the bench to be the pinch hitter. Do you want him to pinch hit? Not really. In, in these two games? Unless, so he, yeah, he's unless, just sitting around? Unless it's just like a soft-tossing lefty, like some kind of crafty sidewinder coming out of the bullpen. That's they will be it. facing a lefty in their first game. So, But he doesn't play a position. Yeah. So it would have to be like a bullpen lefty, like a, a sidewinder loogie type who has to face three batters. Yeah, is that even worth a, a roster spot on the twenty-six man roster? Not, no. I mean, just for Pittsburgh, maybe with pinch hitters being more prevalent. But after that, yeah, yeah. That's why I just feel like it's time. It's time, time to send him down. Mercedes, he could fix some things. He could work on some things in AAA, and it doesn't impact the White Sox. Him trying to figure out his swing right now or his multiple swings is not helping him and it's not helping the team. And where the White Sox currently are right now, they need someone more dependable getting those at-bats at the DH spot uh, than Mercedes. So that's just how I feel right now is that I I would be surprised if you Mercedes on Monday is not optioned uh, before Tuesday's game to Charlotte, which means he'll be in Nashville. And then you could report Jim directly from the source, uh, as you get an opportunity to watch you Mercedes, uh, as he'll be in your town. But that's just how I feel about you Mercedes at the moment. And I think that there's a, there's time for a change for the white Sox, And we'll talk about possible replacements. If that does happen, if that hypothetical does happen later in the show during PO Sox, we'll preview the Chicago white Sox next series, which is in Pittsburgh. But after a quick word from our sponsors, Jim has this week's minor league report. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Meyer League Report, where the biggest news this week from the White Sox farm system was on the position player side. At Charlotte, Jake Berger made his first ever start at second base as the White Sox seek to give him a couple of possible paths to the majors. And in Winston-Salem, Yolaki Cespedes finally made his long-awaited stateside debut for the Dash. Berger made two starts to second base during Charlotte's rain-shortened series against Jacksonville. He handled all five chances flawlessly in his first game, but he overran a pair of identical pop-ups behind first base in his second game, so a transition isn't going to be super simple. Charlotte manager West Helm said Berger will need about 25 games to start feeling comfortable, and he's about 16% of the way there. Cespedes showed up at Winston-Salem on Saturday and started both weekend games at DH. He went 0 for 3 in both and struck out a total of three times, but he drew a walk in his debut. As for the rundown, the Knights had a typically explosive homestand at Truist Field. Berger was one of four Charlotte regulars with an OPS above 1,000, and leading the way was Tim Beckham, who homered six times over a four-game period. Gavin Sheets also slugged 625 while drawing six walks to just two strikeouts. The question, as always, is whether any of these players can maintain such production away from Charlotte. They'll get a chance this week in Nashville, where I'll probably be in attendance for one or two of those games. The pitching remains constant, with Mike Wright providing a solid six every time out, Jimmy Lambert throwing a reasonable four, Jonathan Stever experiencing serious bumps every other start, and Reynaldo Lopez being a non-factor. Stever gave up four homers his last time out, so again, we'll see if the pitchers experience any relief heading on the road. What Houston was to the White Sox this weekend, the Mississippi Braves were to the Birmingham Barons this week, as the Barons are in the middle of a season-long five-game losing streak. Uneven performances were all over the place, with Micah Adolfo striking out 11 times over 23 plate appearances, Cade McClure following his best start of the year on Tuesday with a drubbing on Sunday, and Blake Battenfield taking a beating for the first time all season. On the plus side, Jason Billis halted a string of four unimpressive outings with five no-hit innings on Saturday, striking out nine. Even though Winston-Salem hasn't seen any production from Cespedes yet, they still appreciate the name recognition because they resumed finishing 500 for a series in non-dramatic fashions. Lennon Sosa had a nice week, going 9-for-22 with two doubles and only four strikeouts over six games, but he had no other help in the prospect ranks. Even on the pitching side, Davis Martin gave up four runs over just two-thirds of an inning his last time out, and Luke Schilling gave up five hits and three runs over his first really ugly inning of the season on Sunday. Fortunately, Kannapolis has stepped up in this time of need with some intriguing performances from the system's youngest players. 19-year-old Brian Ramos went 8-for-24, and half of those hits were homers. He also added two doubles while striking out just twice. Luis Mieses and Harvin Mendoza started looking like some of the struggles they endured in Winston-Salem paid off against the lower level of competition. Mieses batted 462 with three doubles and a homer over six games, while Mendoza hit his first A-ball home run and added two doubles while hitting 304. They've made up for the ordinary weeks from guys like Jose Rodriguez and Chase Krogman. The pitching isn't as precocious, especially since Matthew Thompson joined Jared Kelly on the injured list. Both pitchers are young enough and inexperienced enough that the early control problems they showed maybe would be better addressed off-site. It could also be a workload management tool, or they just might both be hurt. 
These are the kinds of issues that will be easier to detect when there's an Arizona Rookie League to channel some of these players to. For the time being, you'll have to settle for Bailey Horn's five dominant innings his last time out, and Kannapolis's 4-2 record against Down East for the first series victory of the Cannonballers era. Looking ahead, the Knights come to visit me in Nashville, the Barons return to Birmingham to play Pensacola, the Dash head to beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, and Kannapolis plays host to Fayetteville. The Chicago White Sox now try to get that bad taste out of their mouth this week as they have a two-game series in Pittsburgh. And the Pirates did the White Sox a, a, a solid by giving Cleveland a tough time this past weekend, picking up a couple wins and ensuring that the White Sox have at least a two-and-a-half game lead going into this series on Cleveland. So thank you, Pittsburgh. Uh, the Pirates' record is not good. They're 25 and 45 on the season. They lost on Sunday 2 to 1 to Cleveland in a tough game for the Pirates. That was well pitched for both teams. In their last 10 games, the Pirates are 2 and 8. And at home, they're much better at home. They're 15 and 20 this year at PNC Park. Offensively, the Pirates score three and a half runs per game. That's not very good. On the run prevention side, they allow close to five runs per game. They're at 4.88 runs allowed per game. That is not good. And that could be music to the ears of White Sox hitters. The pitching probables for this series Tuesday is a 6.05 p.m. Central Time start. It will be a left-hander for Pittsburgh, Tyler Anderson, against Lucas Giolito. Anderson, in his last six starts, has allowed 26 runs and 10 home runs. On Wednesday, this is an odd start time. It is 11.35 a.m. Central Time on Wednesday. It'll be Chase DeYoung for the Pirates, going up against Dylan Cease. DeYoung gave up five earned runs in one start earlier in June against the Miami Marlins, but he's only allowed two runs or fewer in his other three starts, but he's not one that goes beyond five innings in any of his appearances in 2021. So that's what the White Sox are going to be facing as far as the Pirates starting pitching. And Jim, again, starting with the lefty, coming off a four-game series in which the offense only scored eight runs, we spent a lot of time talking about, man, Jose Abreu and Yohan Makata have to bounce back. This offense has to bounce back. Nothing better than facing a lefty like Tyler Anderson that should not give the White Sox hitters fits and has been giving up quite a bit of runs and home runs in his last six starts. That's what it looks like. And you maybe set the maybe you set expectations a little bit too high when you look at a guy like Anderson from the left side and then a guy like DeYoung on the right side who is not overpowering, has some issues with, you know, I guess competing within the strike zone and goes outside a little bit. So you can kind of see a situation where the White Sox, you know, resume bum slaying. Um that could, that could also lead to disappointment, but at the same time, like this is how the White Sox have built their record uh, by winning games like this and by resolving tensions and and establishing themselves as a good team. You know, Maybe a, a series like the Astros says they're not a great team or at least not a great team in this current form, but I'm hoping that you know from the position player side, as you mentioned, like Abreu and Moncada, they show up uh, You know, maybe with the a couple of starters who are not great at going long, although Anderson, you know, Anderson's fine. He sometimes takes, uh, he has to wear it in some games to go along, whereas DeYoung doesn't. Like, should be able to get to a bullpen that isn't that good, and they, they should be able to see pitchers they can hit. 
So you're hoping for you know, a Brayu and Makata turnaround, but I'm also hoping that you know, like a guy like Brian Goodwin, this can still be his comfort zone. I guess it'd be like a Brian Goodwin revenge game since he did come from the Pittsburgh system. And, uh, you know, somebody like Jake Lamb who can find a matchup to his liking against a guy like DeYoung who is not overpowering and might work lower in the zone. So that's kind of what I'm looking at is like you have the the headliners, as you mentioned, but also like the pitching staff is weak enough that these role players who have been providing surprising punch or hero moments along the way might get a couple extra shots just with a little bit of rest and a weaker pitching staff that's maybe down closer to their level. The expectation is that the White Sox should win both of these games, correct? Yeah. What if they don't? Uh, it depends, I think, on the shape of their loss. Um, like, say, you know, when, you, when you have like Dylan C starting and Dylan C, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. Like, if they lose a slugfest, like 8-6 to six or something like that, and the offense shows up, but... Pitcher digs too deep a hole or they have to go, you know, to rely on the front end of the bullpen a little bit longer. You raise some concerns about Dylan Cease that way, but at least the larger concerns about the offense showing up on other days of the week aren't there. You know, you can't bank on two wins in a row against any team. And it's just more, I think, a matter of how they play. You know, because I think they can't treat this as a trap series anymore because they got so thoroughly basted by the Astros. Like if they I would say if they like split with the Astros after winning the Rays series, then you could say this series is a letdown series. But I think given the embarrassment that they suffered and given that they have an off day, this does seem like a way to regroup. And I would hope that you would see some regrouping their performances, at least team-wide you're always susceptible especially like when you're counting on like an individual start from an erratic starter that you have a situation where just one guy doesn't have it and digs too deep a hole but i think team-wide you need to see more life you need to see more runs scored uh you need to see just sustained rallies uh strung together positive at bats some home runs Uh, that's i think what we're looking for how much i guess how much attention are you going to pay watching Adam Frazier for the Pirates? Or is there anybody else in this roster that you'll be paying close attention to for Pittsburgh as a possible trade target for the White Sox? Mm, Not, you know, it's hard to know just because like I'm looking at like somebody like say Brian Reynolds who would maybe theoretically check some boxes and he's 26 and He's had, you know, an up and down start to his career. This is his third full season. Uh, good, nice rookie year. Uh, rough pandemic year. This year he's back. So theoretically, he's somebody who could be moved uh, if they wanted to. He's up to three wins above replacement this season. Do they want to bank around him or do they want to use a way to rebuild? But I think like he's probably somebody they probably want to keep or extract a ransom for. So uh, they don't really have, I think, other players who fill that niche in between or otherwise they would be better than they are. But I think part of the reason why they've had, um, you know, they've been susceptible to the losing streaks they've had and the, the, the bad weeks into like towards months that uh, just, they don't have, they're short on talent and the guys who are playing, you know, should they be removed from the lineup one way or another um, that could make it even rougher in Pittsburgh. We will be recapping this series on the upcoming Sox Machine Live, which we will post details on when we will be live streaming on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash Sox Machine and on SoxMachine.com later this week. Definitely follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine and you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh for 
More details on when we will be streaming live to recap the Pittsburgh Pirates, Pirates series and preview the upcoming weekend series against the Seattle Mariners. Now, you know what I should say, though? With Dylan C. starting against Pittsburgh, we get to see him hit again. We do. So maybe there's that bat. The missing oh, bat. There you go. That missing power. <laughs> yes. What did he have? Three hits against Cincinnati? Yep. Double off the wall, and that I think that wall in right field at PNC is shorter. So, Just have to be careful, because it sounds like uh, Jacob deGrom is getting himself hurt. Yep. Hitting. And they're basically the same. Of course. <laughs> yeah, that's the comparison that I was trying to make. Yeah, Dylan Cease <laughs> is pretty much the same as Jacob deGrom. Maybe offensively. They are the same. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we get to see Dylan Cease hits, and that will be exciting. And we get to see Lucas Gilito face the Pittsburgh Pirates, which we have good memories last year of Gilito facing Pittsburgh. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the White Sox win these two games and they start building up some momentum before coming home to a packed crowd, 100% capacity for guaranteed Ray Field. Pretty much. Second opening day, the White Sox are treating it as the Seattle Mariners come into town next weekend. And again, we'll recap the Pirates series and preview that Mariners series later this week on Sox Machine Live. But coming up next on this podcast, you guys had a lot of questions for us. So let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you can submit your questions to us via Twitter at Sox Machine. However, our mailbag continues to get filled by our Patreon supporters, which we have well over 500 Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. So for this week's P.O. Sox mailbag, all the questions come from our Patreon supporters. And Jim, let's get into it. The first question that we have comes from Mark Sambor. And Mark wrote to us, should the White Sox training staff be held more accountable for the continuous leg injuries, and what's your level of confidence Jimenez and Robert return this year? I would say, yes, they need to be held more accountable. I would say also that a lot of the other teams are wrestling with this topic right now. As bad as the White Sox have had it with injuries, like Baseball Prospectus has this really nice injury ledger that keeps live track of who's missing, uh, broken down the team level, and also comparing them across the league and the White Sox when it comes to either players missing or the amount of wins above replacement projected wins above replacement they're missing from the combined total of the players who are absent both of those numbers are middle of the pack like some teams have just had it really rough and uh, it's a problem all across the league baseball perspectives also had an article about like what's happening with position player injuries and they're just a lot of uh, upper leg strains, quads, hamstrings, just uh, across the league, just a lot of strains. And so, you know, Rick Hahn, he talked about it. He said he doesn't exactly know right now, and they're looking into why this is happening. So perhaps there is, you know, you can't necessarily count on the White Sox, you know, making any kind of swift change to uh, replace an underperforming segment of the team that isn't uh, in uniform. 
but I think they're looking into it. The one thing you know that I can think of is that when it comes to the pandemic year and just how players had to work out away from the team that you just wonder if like perhaps there was just some players you know, were trying to stay in shape, but maybe stayed in shape the wrong way to where there was some muscle imbalance with how they operate. And perhaps some muscles are weaker than others that left, you know, maybe whatever part, uh, hamstrings, quads, hip flexors, what have you, just those were the ones that are, you know, out of that, I guess, cluster of muscles, you know, maybe just one player underworked one or uh, one player overworked another and just threw it out of whack. So now when they run to first base, they're at their, at the risk of their lower bodies exploding. So that's really the only thing I can think of right now. And just when you see it as a problem all across the league, that might seem to be just like a lot of teams developing bad habits just because of the unprecedented situation of athletes working out basically by themselves, not under team supervision or not with teams checking in or um, you know, not with other players in their mini camps and warm weather states, wherever they work out. So that's just maybe my theory based on just how prevalent it is across the league. As for uh, Robert and Jimenez, like Jimenez seems like he should be back. Like uh, given that they establish a timetable for him to return, the White Sox generally, I think, try to avoid that because Rick Hahn, you know, he, he seems to be sensitive to being burned when he promises too much or says something that could be even be interpreted as a promise too much. And whether he says he meant it or not, like something like the money will be spent or, or what have you, that uh, he doesn't like those words being thrown back in his face. So I think as the years have gone on, he's been more cautious, issues more qualifiers. So the fact that he's had a timetable established with qualifiers, you know, having a, a, an idea of when he'll be back in a minor league affiliate with a rehab stint and then, you know, seeing how he does there. I'm guessing, you know, that they feel good about him returning probably for the last two months of the season, or at least the bulk of those two months for Robert until there's a timetable given just the injury, given that, you know, Adam Engel had a setback during his uh, rehab or uh, trying to come back from his uh, leg injury that either they're going to be cautious or it's just hard to do. You know, if they are, there are these muscle imbalances that, you know, are speculated upon just based on the types of injuries that are just so common these days. So that's my, th my feeling on it right now. I think Robert will come back at some point. You know, my guess would be September, but uh, that's just more of a guess based on their initial timetable and not anything based on like recent words. So here's hoping because uh, the White Sox can use the help. Even if, you know, Jimenez is like say 80% of what he can provide that's still better than like what your mean Mercedes can see, provide it seemingly a hundred percent. You know, maybe he's dealing with something uh, that we don't know uh, body wise, but for the time being, you know, and his track record being so limited that uh, we know that Jimenez can play even when he's not feeling all that great. Mercedes. Yeah, it's, it's rough. And, and there are other players like him too, that just overmatched for the amount they're expected to provide. So any and all help is appreciated. And I think Jimenez will be able to provide that help at some point. To add to what you said, Jim, something that caught my attention. So different sport, but the Los Angeles Lakers chose to not renew the contract of their director of training. And I found that to be pretty interesting because the reporting out of Los Angeles was because of the amount of injuries that the Lakers had this season. 
and how it impacted as far as their chances of winning another NBA championship. And we're seeing this across all sorts of sports. So for Major League Baseball, looking to maybe make a change on who is responsible for the athletic training of their ball clubs and be with the team every single day and coming up with these training programs, I think there's going to be some cross-sport competition going on uh, because it's just not baseball. We are seeing this in basketball. We are seeing this even in hockey and in football that these types of injuries, these types of nagging leg injuries are seen across all sports. And if you are a team looking to make a change, the people that you're going to be reaching out to uh, that you heard good things about, it's going to be an interesting competition because they may be also getting job offers from different sports. So it is one of those interesting things that I, I'm going to keep an eye on just to see if we do get some athletic trainers that switch sports. They go from basketball to baseball or they go to baseball to football. Uh, I don't know how siloed this industry is. I think we've been for White Sox fans for a long time with Herm Schneider. We've just been spoiled uh, with uh, as far as uh, not having to worry about injuries for quite some time, but in this past decade, that really hasn't been the case for the White Sox. And we'll see what happens after this offseason if Rick Hahn deems that there needs to be a change within the White Sox training staff because the amount of injuries that the White Sox players have been suffering. We'll, we'll have to see after the season, Mark. But great question. Thank you so much for submitting it. Our next question. All right, so we teased it at the beginning of the show when we talked about Yuma Mercedes. So let's get back to the topic of Yuma Mercedes. We got two questions regarding a possible demotion of Yuma Mercedes Jim. First, starting with Alex Rude, he wrote to us, considering Gavin Sheets has an OPS of 571 away from Charlotte this year, Jake Berger would have to be the replacement for Yuma Mercedes from Charlotte, right? And then Mark Jontry wrote to us, is Tim Beckham a possible call-up? Yeah, I, I guess we'll start with uh, Berger, you know, and we can talk about this, you know, his move to second base, playing second, like the week after Nick Madrigal gets hurt, he's seen starting at second, and that's pretty cool. Like, first of all, I'll say that it's nice to see the White Sox experimenting, uh, but I think the timing of it makes it seem like if they're going to make that move... And they know that there are, you know, whether it's your mean Mercedes, whether it's, you know, Larry Garcia getting hurt, like just when you know that some guys are playing banged up and, and might, the, you know, the, the current speed of the game might be too much for them and they need to dip into uh, their reserves at Charlotte at some point, it would seem like you wouldn't have Berger playing games that soon. If they're, if, indeed, if Wes Helms is talking about like 25 games needed to be comfortable like to to have him start two games and then to call him up seems kind of short-sighted kind of like not having a plan for him and given that he's coming off two Achilles injuries you probably want to have like some kind of consistency in mind just to make sure that you're not throwing actions at him that his body's not accustomed to you don't know how it's going to react to so I think you imagine you want to take that carefully and calling him up in the middle of that seems kind of haphazard uh it's not necessarily a bad idea to call him up just because he is on the 40-man roster so they wouldn't cost a spot so if they wanted to try him for a week while somebody's hurt like 
not necessarily the worst idea, but at second base, just seeing like Dallas Keuchel's re- reaction to the blown rundown with Tim Anderson dropping the ball and just seeing, you know, Yon Makata digging uh, holes for pitchers with uh, early game errors. Uh, I don't think you want to throw Beckham or uh, sorry, Berger at second place right now at this point and expect him to play a, a capable or competent defense at second while hitting against major league pitching. It just seems like too much on his plate and I, I don't see a real path for success there right now. Um, with Beckham, you know, he's kind of a classic Charlotte story in that his home splits are superior to his road splits. Um, he, he has played a lot of positions, but when he gets to the major league level, he tends to strike out like 10 times as often as he walks or something like close to that. His OBP is below 300. Uh, can hit the occasional homer. Like he's not a bad guy to have standing in position, like say in the case of, you know, Danny Mendick. If Mendick weren't in the organization and Tim Beckham had to come up and start against left-handed pitching and some righties, like you'd feel okay about it being him being there for a couple weeks. But when you add him to the players who are similar to him and that like you wouldn't expect them like Jake Lamb to hit like he's hitting. You wouldn't expect Brian Goodwin to hit like he's hitting right now. Uh, and you're kind of waiting for these guys to fade out. Like, I guess you can throw Beckham in there and see if he care, you know, catches some, some uh, early lightning, you know, for the first few weeks, because that might be all they need from him. But when you look at just his skill set on paper, his right hand swing, not being strong against righties, um, you know, striking out a lot, walking a bunch. This could be just a triple-A success story exacerbated by Charlotte's condition. So I'm intrigued by the recent power outburst, but I just don't know how, you know, if he were lefty, I think I'd be more intrigued. But as a righty, just it feels like he'd be another kind of similar player added to the pile, just crossing your fingers every time he's in the lineup that something works. Uh, so I'm not, you know, if they called him up, I'd get it, and I'd be interested to see what he looks like, but... I just, I'm not getting all that excited about it myself yet, just because the markers, you know, I guess pertaining to how he might succeed against major league pitching just aren't that strong. That's why I think if the White Sox do demote Yuri Mercedes, if they option him back to Charlotte, I get a sense that it's Gavin Sheets that would come up. Yeah, at least there'd be a reason to play him. Like he would provide some relief in left field to uh, Andrew Vaughn. He'd provide a left-handed bat at DH. Like there are a few ways you could play him where you'd feel like he gives you more of a chance. With Beckham, like you throw him in, and you kind of cross your fingers. Beckham will. I think Beckham would call come up with the current injury situation if Tim Anderson had to go in the injured list because his hamstrings started barking on him. Yeah, I, I think with Larry Garcia, that's a case where there might be an infielder needed, like if right. his knee yeah, isn't back to normal. Lurie looks like he needs a day off. A lot of guys in this White Sox roster look like they need a day off. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And maybe that'll they'll make get two things of them. better. But again, I, I stand by my comment. I think your Mercedes should be optioned to Charlotte. And Alex and Mark, my pick is Gavin Sheets to be called up to replace your Mercedes and see what Sheets can do for a couple of weeks and uh, hoping that Aloy Jimenez continues to rehab. His rehab continues to go well. There are no setbacks. And Jose Abreu and Yohan Makata go back to hitting like they are supposed to. 
and things are going well for the White Sox. But Alex and Mark, thank you so much for your questions. Our next question comes from Michael, and Michael asked us, do you think that there's a disconnect in how the front office thought Liam Hendricks would be used compared to how he actually is being used? It feels odd that he was passed up at three high leverage situations, if we're counting the ninth and 10th innings, uh, if we're counting the ninth and 10th on the 16th as separate. I believe these are dates in the month of June. Looking back at the calendar, yes. Yeah, the 9th and the 10th and the 16th. Yeah, the the two games against the Toronto Blue Jays to end that series and then the 16th, the last game against Tampa Bay this week. Yeah, it's. I think there are two ways where you could see Hendricks being used in a way that's not conventional uh, to the standard you know, replaceable closer. One is either uh, pitching more than one inning on a relatively routine basis, like getting four or five, six outs and, and handling maybe some high leverage situations entirely himself. And I think there's also the idea of like the reliever pitching in the tie game in the ninth inning, especially on the road. That's I think where most closers or at least most managers are averse to using closers in that situation. That's something I think newer managers are breaking themselves away from, but Conventional wisdom still says like, well, you need a guy for the save situation for the 10th, even though that may not arrive. It's just kind of just maybe last decade logic, but it is still logic that's prevalent in terms of you know, how some managers operate and how the game is discussed. I think when it comes to Hendricks, like there, I wouldn't necessarily expect him to be relied upon to get four or five, six outs on a routine basis, just because I think they do have October in mind and riding him in October the way that Oakland wrote him. Uh, where he threw two innings, maybe even three innings if the first two innings went well and it's a do-or-die situation. Um, however, I, I think in the case of like this last series against Houston where he had one opportunity to pitch, he didn't pitch, uh, Garrett Crochet faltered in his place, and then a situation never got to him to pitch. That's, I think, what's, what's frustrating. And I think I'd rather see a case where Hendricks doesn't pitch because he'd pitch too often. <laughs> like, I think that's a good problem when he, when he's getting into games, whether it's because there are like, you know, save situations three days in a row, or there's two save situation. Or I shouldn't say, um, you know, there's maybe a game where he hadn't pitched in a while. And so he comes in in a tie game in the ninth, and then there are two save situations afterwards. And so he pitches on three consecutive days or three out of four. And so, you know, they might have to sit him for a game just because they want to save him for the long haul. I think that's how I'd like to see him use. Just, I, I don't want to see, especially with the White Sox trying to put some distance in between them and Cleveland and try to build up that cushion. And, you know, they built up that cushion like we talked about to five and a half games in order to, to, to dip into it when they have a tough week. And so they, they do that. But uh, when it comes to like rebuilding that, uh, cushion and when there are games that they can maybe win against a team they really need to beat and Hendricks hasn't pitched in a while then I would like to see Hendricks come in and maybe non-conventional situations where you don't like your other guys that much uh, just because it, it feels like if he's not pitching in games that he can swing and uh, in, in games where he can maybe make life easier for himself in September by putting games away in June and July that's, I think, where I'd like to see you know, Larusa, you know, go outside himself more often during the season. I, I think there are ways to build in rest of September to keep guys fresh for October. If they can just press this lead, you know, past 
five games, you know, more towards 10 games. And I think that's a case where you demoralize Cleveland a little bit. Uh, you, you look at the postseason odds and you feel like that's the time to let up. But right now when, you know, he goes four games in a row without pitching and they bypass one game he could affect, that's where I get frustrated. And I can understand that frustration. I didn't mind the call to go to Garrett Crochet because he was going to be facing two lefties and he has been throwing the ball well. I understand afterwards in the analysis from Gordon Beckham that he was surprised that Zach Collins went to the slider so often when it, w- when it appeared that that's what Houston was looking for from Crochet. So maybe that's a little bit of the fault of Collins as far as his game calling, uh, continuing to go to the pitch that Houston was looking for and they made Crochet pay. But yeah, the only time that Hendricks pitches this weekend is in a laugher and he throws the last inning of the entire series. Uh, and I get, I understand the frustration uh, that for other teams, when we're, when the White Sox are in these tight games, you see other teams go to their closer to get the game into extra innings or the possibility of getting to extra innings and continuing to hear from Tony Larusa that Hendricks only pitches in save situations. I cannot imagine that was what Rick, what Rick Hahn was planning for when he signed Liam Hendricks. Or maybe, you know, maybe he was planning for it, thinking Aaron Bummer would be more reliable, thinking Evan Marshall would be more reliable, Michael Kopech would be healthy. But I think when, and Cody Hoyer too, looking, you know, just uneven outing to outing. Um, that's, like, that's, I think, the case where uh, just when, when you don't have those other possible closers waiting in the wings for opportunities when Hendricks uh, feels like he should get a day off, like they don't have those guys right now. So when they don't have those guys and, and, you know, crochet wasn't a bad call. Like, I don't think it's a bad call. Just, I think now it's three games, four games in a row where they just, you know, it, they hadn't gone to him in situations where uh, they could have, and it didn't work out. So I think I just like to see it as a change of pace, like going to Hendricks just to show that he will do it. He doesn't have to do it every time. Like if he, say if Hendricks pitched the game before, I think it was Evan Marshall was the guy who came up short. Like if, if, uh, Hendricks threw that one and then he called for crochet in this one then I would kind of get it then I would say like yeah you can, maybe you don't want to do it every time so if you have good matchups and lefties coming up and crochet usually effective against lefties sure go for it but when it's you know just time after time after time that's when I would like to see Hendricks I guess just come out there and eliminate all the overthinking you could possibly do do you think come postseason time, Larusa will change his managing habits of using Hendricks? I sure hope so. I would think he's. I know he's stubborn, but I think you know, or I guess I should say, I'm hoping that some of that stubbornness is his belief in like how he manages for 162 games. And you know, he seems to have a good idea of what it takes. To, and and you know, as we, you talked about before, just not trying to overreact to bad series or bad plays and just trying to keep his eye on the bigger picture. Like part of this makes me think it's just a way of him managing a closer's workload and, and saving his most important reliever for the games that are really important in September and October, making sure that he's not overused or injured before then. Uh, I should hope, just because I think Buck Showalter, the failure that he had with Zach Britton, inning after inning after inning, not going to him and finally breaking uh, with Britton never coming into the game, that seemed to be kind of a uh, 
a breaking point in that logic for at least how games are managed in October. And, you know, Showalter is old school. Even like Ned Yost, he almost fell into that trap, but he got, he, he, <laughs> that wild card game basically saved his career. And so he, uh, he, he basically, he, he was kind of born again when it came to how to manage a bullpen. Like that was his uh, come to Jesus moment. So I think that's a case where there've been enough high profile, uh, failures or close calls with veteran managers who realize like in do or die situations when there is no tomorrow you can't be bound so rigidly by that orthodoxy so i would be surprised if larusa were that stringent come october well michael thank you so much for your question and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for po socks Again, if you would like to ask a question or pitch a topic to us to answer in a future edition of P.O. Socks, the best way of doing so is becoming a Patreon supporter of Socks Machine. Go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up. We have monthly plans at $2, $3, $5, and $10 a month in which you get ad-free versions of the podcast and the website. You get exclusive content as well. We're really ramping up and getting close to the Major League Baseball draft. So there'll be more content coming your way in regards to the MLB draft as that will be on Sunday, July 11th, the first round. And I just recently wrote a draft watch report on three college pitchers that are making themselves a lot of money. One of those was Will Benar of Mississippi State, and that dude just struck out 15 in the first game of the College World Series. Uh, so I find it to be worthwhile content. And uh, whenever we get new Sox Machine swag, our Patreon supporters get the first opportunity to purchase that swag. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. And that will end this podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.